I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. This mission's important, John. I want you to come with me to help me lead the team. What do you say, John? I put in my time. What's that mean? It means my war's over. He never draws first blood. He only fights back. The first time was for himself. The second time was for his country. This time... Rambo! Something went wrong. It's for his friend. Trumpman was a good man, and I'm really very sorry. You're just leaving him? What do you expect us to do? Send in a Delta team? Create an international incident? What about me? By the way you look, I can see you have no experience in war. Do you? Fired a few shots. That if you're captured, we'll deny any participation or even knowledge of your existence. Sounds familiar. John Rambo. You'll find out. I know he's your friend. <laughs> but you cannot do this. You both will die. For what? Because you do it for me. What do you think this man is? God! Oh, God, we have mercy. He won't. Nightmare. Stallone. Rambo 3. I'm sorry I got you into this, John. No, you're not. Hey there, Pierre. 
Relaxed Use listeners. That's right, you guessed it. We're going to be talking about the beloved action franchise, Rambo. Specifically, Rambo 3. Because according to our first guest on this edition of the program, Hannah R. Gurman, a clinical associate professor at New York University, there's a lot Rambo can tell us about how America processes subjects like the Vietnam War and, more broadly, counterinsurgency. Hanna is the author of the recent article at Responsible Statecraft entitled Rambo Rides Again? Switching Roles and Purifying Souls in Ukraine. Trust me when I say that this is a fascinating conversation that uses a beloved pop culture franchise's third film to discuss issues related to U.S. foreign policy and national security. Later on in the program, we'll hear from Jacobin staff writer and author of Yesterday's Man, the Case Against Joe Biden, Bronco Marchtich, about the latest declassified documents released by the FBI pertaining to 9-11 and Saudi Arabia. But first, Hannah R. Gurman on Rambo 3, Counterinsurgency, and the Crisis in Ukraine. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on, Hannah R. Gurman, author of the Responsible Statecraft piece entitled Rambo Rides Again, Switching Roles and Purifying Souls in Ukraine, also the author of a number of books, including The Descent Papers, Hearts and Minds, and Whistleblowing Nation, and an associate professor at NYU's Gallatin. Uh, so how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. So, Hannah, first, if we could, uh, maybe you could tell my listeners uh, a bit about yourself. I, I know you um, specialize in English and comparative literature, and you've actually uh, taught this movie, Rambo 3, in your classes. And it was funny when you mentioned that to me, because uh, I took a few classes on, on film and literature. And one of the ways that my teacher would cover uh, a lot of topics is to cover, you know, popular movies. It was, a, um, it was actually a, a course in the history of violence in cinema, and she actually used a lot of um, pop culture type films. Uh, so I think that's a really good way to teach students uh, about history and uh, culture. Yeah, so my background, um, as you said, is in literature. Um, I did my doctoral work in literature, but sort of made my way into studying the history of US foreign policy. Um, in graduate school. So it was sort of a natural fit for me to think about the two as inextricably linked. Um, and I totally agree that it's a great way to get students interested in what is sometimes considered dry or overwhelming material to think about foreign policy. But I also have learned a lot. I think that there are ways that even those of us who consider ourselves experts in policy um, can learn from thinking about the cultural zeitgeist of a moment and how much that tells us about the history of U.S. empire and also our own moment. So out of curiosity, how did you start teaching uh, 
Rambo 3 uh, in, in some of your courses? Because I, I know a lot of people uh, are big fans of the first movie and, you know, there's been so many sequels now. Why Rambo 3 and uh, how have your students maybe uh, thought about the film after watching it in, in the context of uh, one of your courses? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, I think it started by accident. The course that I teach it regularly in is a freshman seminar on the Cold War. And so we're trying to do a lot in a fairly short amount of time. And I wanted to be able to explore the history of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the way that American policymakers were responding to it in light of the failures of Vietnam. And that movie, Rambo 3, well, underappreciated as a film, is a perfect entree into how America was trying to get over the Vietnam syndrome and at the same time saw the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan as the Soviets' Vietnam. Um, and so, you know, you could read a history book account, um, which, um, you know, I try to pepper um, that into our viewing of the film, but the film itself does so much of that work for us. And the figure of Rambo as a disillusioned Vietnam veteran who rediscovers a sense of purpose in going to fight with the Mujahideen. I mean, I just think that it, it is a great way to understand what is happening in the American national psyche in response to the Soviet invasion. Yeah, it's such an interesting film in a way because you can see how far apart it is from maybe the original film, First Blood, because First Blood, I always joke to people, it's a movie about a homeless vet that just wanted a sandwich and they wouldn't give it to him and it goes downhill from there. Uh, but it's a very sad and very somber film. And I, I think it, in a way, you can view it as very critical of uh, the Vietnam War and what it did to a lot of soldiers. Whereas by the time we get to Rambo 3, uh, it's, you know, it's a big budget action movie and it's very, it's triumphalist. Whereas the original First Blood, I, I think is much more melancholic in tone. Yeah, I think that's a perfect analysis. Um, and the first movie is much more critical of the Vietnam War the, by the time you get to Rambo 3, there is a kind of background, a sense that the, that the war has ruined Rambo, but nonetheless, he needs to rediscover through another war, <laughs> um, a sense of meaning. Um, and so the critique falls off. Um, at the same time, um, there's a part of me that thinks it's kind of there in subtler forms, because whenever I watch the film, all I can see is Vietnam in reverse. Um, it seems to be much less about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan than it really is a, an imaginary reversal of the Vietnam War in which Rambo gets to be with the people on the ground. Um, and so, and that is still critical of Vietnam, but he gets to be with the insurgents. You know, instead of the US bombing, you know, Rambo is actually on the ground with uh, these resistance fighters against the Soviets. And in a way, it's almost, uh, it's like an atonement of sorts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my reading of the film, at least. And I think that it's hard to see it as anything different than an attempt to replay Vietnam with a role reversal. Um, and you can just kind of switch out the Vietnamese, come in for the Mujahideen. And by the way, I think this is true not only in Hollywood, but in sort of 
military lessons learned and counterinsurgency, having read many of those over the years, that in the ideology of counterinsurgency, you can kind of fill in. <laughs> X insurgent can substitute out. Um, counterinsurgency as an ideology is a very decontextualized imaginary, so to speak, in which, you know, it doesn't really matter who the insurgent is. Um, it's this kind of schematic framework. So I think that it's not only um, a Hollywood thing, but it is part of what counterinsurgency is about. If you could, and I, I know this seems like a very uh, basic, basic question, uh, but I still think there's people out there that They've heard the term counterinsurgency, especially uh, since the Bush years and the war on terror, and we'll get into that later. But how would you describe what counterinsurgency actually means? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a great question because it's so loaded. It First of all, in order to counter an insurgency, you have to ask what an insurgency is. Um, and I guess in the most simple terms, it's any group that tries to subvert the le legitimate government. Legitimate government is also loaded. So insurgency is often in the eyes of the beholders um, and its connotation can be negative or positive in relation to who's fighting the counterinsurgency. Um, so in the Cold War, um, let's say in the Vietnam War, the uh, NLF and the Viet Cong were insurgents because they were trying to revolt against the South Vietnamese government. Um, and then the United States fought a counterinsurgency war there. I mean, you can go back in history and think of some people say that the Native Americans um, in the early days of the US and even before when it was just settler colonialism were fighting uh, a counterinsurgency war in the American Indian Wars. Um, many of America's wars um, since in the 20th century and beyond have been counterinsurgency wars. Um, Iraq and Afghanistan were lumped into that as well, where you had a pr proxy governments that were supported by the US um, and rebels who were trying to destabilize those governments were, were called insurgents. And therefore, a counterinsurgency war is an attempt to suppress those movements um, in the name of a legitimate government. So then it's interesting. I wanted to get back to, since I mentioned Bush and the 9-11 you know, era, at the beginning of your article, you talk about how a lot of people are hailing uh, this brutal invasion of Ukraine as uh, a paradigm shift uh, or the end of the 9-11 era. And you mentioned this figure of Elliot Cohen, uh, who co-founded uh, the neoconservative project for the new American century, um, uh, a think tank that my listeners are very familiar with. Uh, why do you start the article by talking about Elliot Cohen and the uh, so-called end of the 9-11 era? Well, I was struck in, in following all of the events in Ukraine, I, I was struck to see Elliot Cohen's prominence. I mean, he was a very prominent figure and in many ways never went away. Um, but he seemed to be coming back with a vengeance um, to press for um, support for a counterinsurgent, uh, uh, to, to support the insurgents or you know, potential insurgents in Ukraine 
um, in an and in an effort to provoke a counterinsurgency war that would doom Russia. Um, and I just thought I I couldn't stop thinking about a the fact that Elliot Cohen felt so like brazen to come out and talk about these things, um, and it's complicated because he was somewhat admitting failure in Iraq, but not really, right? So while talking about the failures of America's counterinsurgency campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, the whole point was really to reimagine America on the other side of that vision. Um, And that's where I felt like I had literally seen that movie before and that he was espousing the vision of Rambo III. Um, But I just think it's really important for anybody who doesn't know who Elliot Cohen was to go back and look him up because he was a very influential figure um, in the pressing for the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, And so you would think that he would have lost all credibility, um, but that hasn't been the case. Yeah, it's interesting. I I like... uh one particular line from your article, uh, counterinsurgency is back, although this time we get to be on the side of the insurgents and our own counterinsurgency failures of the past become the basis for imagining Russia's dark future. Could you elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah, well, I think, again, that goes back to my reading of Rambo 3, and I think that Elliot Cohen is reenacting that vision. So uh, at at a certain point, most rational people admitted that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were failures. Um, and those were failed counterinsurgency wars. And there were many commentaries about like, this is the end of counterinsurgency. We had a sort of uh, a, an era in which David Petraeus was very lionized um, in American military and national security circles as this kind of genius who turned around the war in Iraq. But as time went on, it's clear that that wasn't the case. Um, And so 9-11 kind of fades into the past for many people. Um, And then you get the invasion of Ukraine um, and the buildup to that and these kind of rising tensions on the superpower level. Um, So with all kinds of Cold War echoes. But in addition to the Cold War echoes, you have, again, this imaginary of counterinsurgency, just that it's not our counterinsurgency war, it's Russia's. So with Rambo III, could you get into the background of maybe events politically leading up to uh, Rambo III? Because I know you talk a little bit in the article about uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski and uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and this idea of uh, that invasion as the USSR's Vietnam War. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, in the lead up to the Soviet invasion, um, Brzezinski did write a memo to Carter in which he said, well, you know, he was cautiously optimistic that this could be a good thing for the U.S. And he pointedly said that this this we could give them their Vietnam Um, counterinsurgency wars have a way of bogging down the occupying nation. So if this, this is what could very well happen to the Soviet Union. Um, and in interviews later in life, Brzezinski said, you know, I was right. That's exactly what happened. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Counterinsurgency wars are grinding and grueling. Um, and it's a rare example of a success 
it's easy to occupy, but it's hard to actually change the political context on the ground. And so there was a sense of, you know, we learned the hard way in Vietnam, and now we're going to give that to them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so, you know, it's not exactly clear what went on behind the scenes, you know, if Carter agreed or not, but there was an, there was um, a, a su increasing support for the Mujahideen and part of the reason why it became so difficult for the Soviets was the fact that the U.S. did intervene um, on the side of the Mujahideen um, and escalated the war, um, prolonged the war. Um, and that, you know, I, I, I think credible scholars of the Soviet Union argue that it played a key role in the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So it's not as though the vision is entirely inaccurate. It's just that it tells you as much about the imagination of the US as it does about um, the geopolitics of counterinsurgency for the Soviet Union and now for Russia. So it's interesting with Rambo 3, in case I have younger listeners that haven't seen it, uh, I believe the movie starts with uh, John Rambo basically, and I think he's in Thailand in a, in a monastery, but uh, then he finds out that uh, his boss, Colonel, I think it's Colonel Troutman, uh, got captured by the Soviets in Afghanistan. And, and Troutman, I think, is the only character that really cares for Rambo throughout the whole series. So Rambo ends up deciding to, to go on a secret CIA mission there. Uh, what do you think about the sort of opening of, of that movie and what it says about this imaginary? Yeah. Um, so, right. Rambo does not want to be a soldier anymore. So the figure of Rambo when we meet him is somebody who's trying to lead a quiet life. He participates in martial arts to make a living, but he gives all the money to the monastery. Um, and he's just in a way trying to redeem himself by staying away from state violence. I think one of the messages of First Blood is that the government and the state are are really responsible. And it's an attempt to show that the soldiers of the war were just manipulated by and ultimately disposed of. So there is this, this kind of patriotic veteran um, protagonist. Um, and in Rambo three, the story is how do we get him back into a war? <laughs> um, so, we, we create a compelling personal narrative. He needs to go in to save his friend and commander who has been captured and is a POW of the Soviets. Um, and so it's kind of, it's, he says no in the beginning that he doesn't want to go on this mission, but when he finds out that it's his friend, it, it gives this personal dimension. Um, and as the movie goes on, it's Rambo's discovery that um, this is a good war and um, he can learn to fight again, despite the disillusionment he had about Vietnam. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned how in, in First Blood there sort of is a criticism of the state going on, because as I recall it, uh, the real conflict is between Rambo on one hand, who is sort of, as you said, been sort of disposed of by the state and who is this conflict with, you know, a, um, a cop played by Ryan Dennehy. So it's there is sort of this anti-state narrative uh, in that first one, and it sort of gets turned on its head in Rambo 3, where he actually, uh, you know, joins the state. He goes on this uh, secret CIA mission. Yeah, but I think it is important at the same time that 
um, the film doesn't really, you know, they're, they're not like going back to Washington and talking. It, it, it's very much still Rambo as this individual superhero. Um, and so I think the state recedes in the background. What's more important is that he's with the, the Afghan people. Um, and as people, many people have pointed out at the end of the movie, it infamously is dedicated in, depending on which version you watch either to the Mujahideen or the people, the heroic people of Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, I remember it saying that this is dedicated to the brave freedom fighters of the Mujahideen, but I think there is also versions that say uh, the people of Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah I, I, I don't know the full history, but I imagine there were a series of revisions <laughs> over time um, when the Mujahideen were not considered to be brave heroes anymore, but had become the bad insurgents once again. If people, if I have younger people in the audience that don't know about that, what happens uh, with the Mujahideen after uh, this conflict with the Soviets? So, well, in the era of Rambo three, it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, and so because the Mujahideen are anti-Soviet, um, we see them as being on the good side, on the American side. Um, but in post, but in post 9-11 America, the Mujahideen are insurgents who are destabilizing an American backed regime in Afghanistan. And at that point, the way that they're characterized is as, you know, Islamic fundamentalist terrorists. Um, and so that's bad insurgents. Um, and we come in as the good counterinsurgents. Reagan famously called them freedom fighters as well. Yeah, I was going to say, what I remember was, I, I know Reagan said that. I also remember seeing footage of, of Shabignu Brzezinski going to Afghanistan and, and saying to a group of, of people involved with the Mujahideen, uh, something along the lines of, you know, God is on your side. So at that point, they were they were considered, you know, oh, th these people are great. Uh, you know, they're, they're great allies. But then later on, you know, this ends up turning into the Islamic fundamentalism that uh, ends up giving us 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, that was another thing I wanted to comment about, about in the piece is that, um, regardless of which side you're on, counterinsurgency wars have a way of escalating and also blowing back. They last a long time. Um, and it, historically, they have in, often empowered groups that um, are potentially at odds with U.S. interests. Um, you think that could happen again with Ukraine? You know, I've thought about, I'm not, I, I want to say, first of all, you know, I'm not an expert on the internal politics of Ukraine. Um, and I know that there's um, a, a, a pretty uh, serious debate about, you know, certain factions within Ukrainian nationalism. Um, you know, Putin talks about denazification. Well, I don't agree with him on that front. He's definitely using that as a pretext. But the fact that there are um, neo-Nazi elements um, within the Ukrainian broad umbrella of Ukrainian nationalism, it's always a possibility. It's always a risk. Um, you know, I, I think that even Elliot Cohen is sort of marking that risk when he says, you know, we need to give, you know, massive amounts of weapons and training to Ukraine. And of course, we know that comes with a risk. I mean, maybe he's just saying that, but even he says that, that these things come with a risk and that if you do support this kind of 
um, insurgency or, you know, escalating an insurgency campaign, you need to be ready for the possibility of a wider war and, and the blowback that could come from that. Could you speak a little bit about what the Russian invasion of uh, Afghanistan meant for Russia, because I believe uh, you, you point towards Gorbachev calling it the bleeding wound, and he made it a, a top priority when he came to power in 1985 to end that war. But I think in a way there's parallels that one can draw between the Soviet Union's uh, invasion of Afghanistan and the U.S. invasion of uh, Iraq. I think there's a lot of, um, I don't know, I would say imperial hubris going on. Yeah, and also imperial disillusionment. Um, so Gorbachev is of a generation where um, I, I think it's really interesting, the arc of Gorbachev's career and life um, that um, in the 60s, he also was part of a 1968 moment where he saw that, you know, Soviet military occupation in Eastern Europe um, was not just costly for the country, but had a moral stain on the Soviet Union. Um, and so he comes to power in, in 1985 in the Soviet Union saying, you know, that's the first thing we need to do is we need to end this war. Um, seeing how, much you know, it's financial, economic, moral cost, the fact that it damaged the Soviets um, sort of uh, at least their desired reputation as, you know, a partner of the third world peoples. Um, and so, you know, that was a key priority of his. Um, but at the same time, the failures of the invasion, according to, you know, Soviet experts, contributed to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. It did a lot of damage um, and a kind of poetic story of imperial decline. Um, you could say there's an analogy to Iraq in the sense that, you know, proved to be a very unpopular war um, and uh, a sense of an empire in decline in its aftermath. Um, the difference being that America <laughs> continually rediscovers its resolve to be a global leader, um, whereas the Soviet Union dissolved. And then, of course, you know, Putin trying to maybe project again um, the, the Russian empire. So, um, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of, it's, if you want to decontextualize, there is a cycle of insurgency and counterinsurgency that you see at, at the very least in the 20th century among big powers, um, Russia and, and, and the United States, especially, um, trying to take these gambles, um, on remaking countries, it going badly, pulling out, having periods of weakness, and then reasserting their, or attempting to reassert their hegemony in the next generation. Yeah, it's interesting too, because, and I think you mentioned this in the article, that in a way, Putin seems to have been taking a lot out of the um, US playbook from when we invaded Iraq. I mean, we, we transgressed national sovereignty, um, with Iraq, and now that's what he's doing, the use of uh, shock and awe tactics is similar, uh, open pursuit of regime change. And also now we have uh, Putin saying, oh, they have chemical weapons. Um, so there's a lot of parallels between what Putin is doing now and the Iraq war. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that that is, a, uh, uh, it, it's hard to admit otherwise, I, it, but it, it also seems to be like such a sensitive subject 
um, I say this in the article, in respectable um, national security circles, foreign policy elites, uh, Obama gave a speech, you know, in which he said, you know, this is not Iraq. And he strangely ended up defending some aspects of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which he had voted against. Um, so there, there's kind of been an effort to bend over backwards. I think one of the things that really troubles me is there's not necessarily a moral equivalence or that these are you know two precisely identical moments, but the fact that it's um, considered verboten to think about the analogies to the Iraq war, I think is important. Like there's a, uh, the fact that Elliot Cohen, he wants to be able to say there was a failure but not really, there's not really a moral reckoning. He wants to then project that failure onto the Russians. Um, at the same time, Putin saw that America got away with a lot of things that are at the very least analogous to what the US did in Iraq. Um, as you said, you know, transgressing national sovereignty, open pursuit of regime change, lying about the presence of chemical weapons, all of these things happened um, and there are people- I, I wanted to say real quick too, I think he sort of alluded to that in the early speeches where he said, well, the US gets to do all these things and we don't. Right, so so regardless of you know whether you think there are parallels, Putin sees the parallels, right? Um, and so he's reminding America, you know, you did this in 9-11, I'm just doing what you did, but now you have this moral outrage where was the moral outrage when you did this uh, in Iraq? Um, so I think that's a very troubling moment for Americans who want to be innocent. But one of the things I wanted to underscore in the piece that I wrote is that saying that America isn't innocent doesn't make Russia innocent either. And so I think we need to do away with this either or, like it's either NATO's fault or it's Putin's fault. It's either America's, they're both guilty <laughs> um, and that can be true. I, I really feel we need to have an intellectual and a moral imagination that can hold those truths at once. It's interesting to me that you mentioned that because I feel as if this has been a thing with Hollywood movies for a long time where a lot of Hollywood movies, including Rambo 3, they're, they're very black and white in how they portray heroes and villains. There's the good guys and the bad guys. And there's not really any gray areas uh, in between. Do you think this is just part of maybe um, the, the popular American imagination where we sort of think in terms of, well, you're either fully innocent uh, or, you know, you're guilty and there is no in between or uh, gray areas? Yeah, I think that's true. And I, again, I don't think that it's limited to Hollywood. I think that you see that perspective in you know, if you open up the New York Times and read about Ukraine, the moral ambiguities are not there. I mean, there are certain ways in which there are no more ambiguities here. Humanitarian crisis, Putin's invasion. I am the first to say I am not of the I'm not a Putin apologist. Um, so but where are there ambiguities? Place things like what is what is Ukrainian nationalism and its history? That's that's complex, just as it is in the United States. Um, what does it mean to be a nation? These are historical questions 
that if you're serious about answering them, there's an element of complexity that's going to undermine a black and white answer. I think part of the black and white now is people like Elliot Cohen who really want to um, have a moral resolve. They need, you know, they're in, it's not, it's not the same. I don't want to say it's exactly the same as getting America to go to Iraq, but they're in the moment of rallying the troops. And that requires the, a moral purity. At least they think it requires an element of moral purity. Just a, a one or two more questions Sarah had for you. Uh, I'm curious, um, and I know you're not necessarily an expert on this, but what do you think of the, the questions people have raised and the debates people have had about uh, the, the issue of, of NATO and NATO expansion? Yeah, I think it's an important question. And it's one that I talk about frequently in my Cold War class. Um, NATO's expansion at the end of the Cold War was unnecessary um, and it was triumphalist. Um, you could go back before that um, if you look at the moment in which NATO came into existence, there were people who opposed it. Um, George Kennan, um, who has been called, you know, the architect of containment, he opposed something like a permanent military alliance um, in a kind of, you know, very um, American way of saying America doesn't go out in search of monsters. America also doesn't want entangling alliances. Um, so I think where it becomes stickier is questions about self-determination um, and what is the history of any individual country's um, sort of prerogative to become part of NATO and what is the power dynamics at work there. And I think to some extent, history will tell us, I don't think we fully know, you know, what, what were the internal machinations involved in the invitation to, or the sort of covert invitation for Ukraine to join NATO and then Ukraine's interest in doing so. Um, so, you know, I'm not a purist on these things. I do think that the historical angle is helpful um, and to see that, you know, NATO A was had dissenters from the beginning and, and could have been less triumphalist at the end of the Cold War. I don't think that justifies Putin's invasion of Iraq. I think it gives him, Iraq, <laughs> I, uh, uh, of Ukraine. I think that gives him a good pretext for invading Ukraine. Do you think one of the problems that we may have when it comes to these kind of discourses now is, I feel like, you know, I, I've mentioned things in the past, like, um, you know, the, the U.S. recognizing uh, Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara and how that, you know, that was officially recognized under Trump. It hasn't been reversed uh, since. So the U.S. has done some things that that I think are worth reflecting on if we want to be seen as like leaders of, of the free world and uh, in favor of self-determination and, and things of that nature. Uh, but I feel like now when you say that, people just assume that you're doing, I guess the term that people use now is a whataboutism. Uh, do you think that some of this talk about, you know, everything being a whataboutism now, uh, do you think that's actually maybe in some ways hurt uh, the discourse? I mean, I, I do for what it's worth, I do think there are people that will say, oh, well, the U.S. did this, so that, 
you know, why are we talking about what Russia does? There are people like that, but I think there's also people that think that this moment can be used uh, as a moment of self-reflection if we want to do better with our foreign policy. Right, right. I don't think it needs to be an either or. That That's the trap, right? That like, if you if you want to engage in a sober reflection on America's past and how that should influence the way it thinks about the future, then somehow you are deflecting from other powers. Um, I think, first of all, it depends on your subject position. You know, as I'm an American and I actually see it as a rather patriotic thing to do, to say that my country should be reflecting on its past uh, constantly. That doesn't mean that it's paralyzed to act. Um, the analogy is, you know, the analogy is, is America's history with racial supremacy, white supremacy and race. Um, it seems that there are a lot of liberals who are very on board with that, who would nonetheless say, you know, you're, you're bogging us down with the past when it comes to the history of American imperial violence. Um, I think that, you know, well, I'm a historian, so history is always going to be relevant. And, and, and also you, you uh, don't have to choose between saying um, it's a zero sum game in order for there to be action in the world against present evils that we need to be innocent. There, nobody is innocent. I, I like how you put it at the end of the article, try as they might, neither America nor Russia can fully launder its war crimes through the other. And I, I think that's important to note, and maybe a, a, a bit on the uh, positive side for you know how we can counter these things in the future. Right. And I think it goes both ways. It means also that Putin, just because Iraq happened, <laughs> it doesn't mean that Putin gets a, a, a free pass to invade Ukraine. Um, so I think that's where I want to see, you know, um, Elliot Cohen should know that his past isn't laundered, but Putin should also know that because Iraq happened doesn't give him a free pass either. We should hold all of these leaders accountable. So last thing here, I promise to let you go after this, but uh, there were two scenes you mentioned in Rambo 3 that I, I suppose stuck out to you because you uh, mentioned them in the article. Uh, I guess the first was the sheep ball scene and the second was the climatic scene. Could you explain uh, what about those scenes stood out to you, uh, maybe starting with the sheep ball scene and then going to the climatic scene afterwards? Yeah, sure. So in the sheep ball scene, Rambo, is, there's music mounting in the background. Um, think about all the Vietnam War films and an apocalypse now and you know helicopters getting ready to attack. Um, but the Soviets are in those helicopters and Rambo is on the ground below. He is literally on horseback riding with the Mujahideen and they're playing this game of sheep ball. It's this, you know, I don't, I don't know if it actually exists, but this is the moment that um, they chose to portray. It's a kind of playful look at Rambo's enculturation um, with the Afghans and also his bonding with them, but the ominous kind of looming helicopters above. Um, so I think that's a really important visual cue of the reversal of the Vietnam imagery in which it's Americans in the helicopters um, and getting ready to um, you know, rain down bombs on the Vietnamese peasants. And that, then he ends up getting into one of those helicopters and he gets to the Stinger missile, right? 
Right. And he takes down the Soviet helicopter and his Soviet nemesis. So again, it's a rush. It's a reversal, um, although it's also showing the imperial decline of the Soviets because, you know, it's the people on the ground who are able to bring down um, the helicopters above in a rare reversal. Um, I also the the I don't know if the climactic moment you're referring to is the one where he pulls the arrowheads from his body. But um, I think many people say that's the most memorable scene in the film. He's injured. So in the process of fighting, he, an arrow is lodged in Rambo's torso. Um, This is where he's bare chested and bleeding. In this wrenching scene, he reaches into, he pushes an arrow from the back of his torso out through the front Um, And then he takes a knife, puts it in the flame um, and literally lights his insides on fire in order to cauterize the wound um, and prevent an infection. Um, And I've just always seen that as um, the imagery, um, while American superhero seems very religious as well, that it's it's Jesus on the cross and he's he's he is bleeding and wounded. Um, and he he's almost martyring himself. But of course, because it's an American superhero film, he doesn't die. He lives um, and it's a happy ending. Um, but a lot of the idea that the, the film is redeeming America of its sins in Vietnam, I think, is encapsulated in that scene in which he is evoking um, Jesus on the cross. In other words, he's sort of um, he gets reborn uh, almost in a messianic way without yes. having to really martyr himself. Exactly, yeah. So in closing, what do you hope my listeners get out of the conversation we've been having here for the past, um, I would say a little over 40 minutes? Uh, wh- what do you want listeners to think about after hearing this conversation between the two of us? Well, a lot of people have been saying that this moment marks the end of the 9-11 era. And I hope that people understand that those proclamations are almost always desires (laughs) Um, and that it's beholden to us to make sure that we remember the legacy of the 9-11 era. So that's one of the things I want them to take away. But I think your point about whataboutism is really important. If you do that, that doesn't mean that you need to apologize for the invasion of Iraq. It it means that you can hold these truths together. Um, And so I think also, you know, maybe on a a side note that the history of American popular culture has a lot of lessons, reflections and lessons for us to think about these things. Um, And so as you're following the news of world events to draw on these lessons, Um, And to dig a little deeper um, into, you know, what is behind the rhetoric of these world leaders, whether it's American or Russian or Chinese, um, to hold them accountable. Yeah, and I would just add to that, you know, what's what's really interesting to me is uh, I had a a journalist on Patrick Coburn recently who's covered a lot of these wars Uh, on the ground. You know, uh, he was in Afghanistan many times uh, during conflicts there. And he said to me, you know, what's interesting is he thinks that uh, this Ukraine invasion uh, by Putin uh, 
is an act of hubris on Putin's part. But then he added to me, he said, don't be surprised if, if the U.S. ends up uh, engaging in some type of hubris in response. Uh, it seems like uh, imperial hubris keeps repeating over and over if we don't reflect on what that hubris has done in the past. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really well said. Well, how can my listeners keep up with your work and are there any projects that you're working on right now that you would like my listeners to know about? And uh, I'd, I'd like to thank you for staying uh, with me for about uh, 45 minutes now to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, sure. You know, I, I guess I'm relatively rare in that I'm not terribly active on social media. Um, I'm a little bit of an old fashioned academic and it takes me a while to write. Um, but I, you know, I would direct them to um, my previous works for now, um, particularly if you're interested in um, the counterinsurgency um, topic, um, Hearts and Minds, um, the edited volume. It has a series of case studies that takes a critical look at the American mythology of counterinsurgency. Um, so I think that would be my recommendation. Um, and then I guess a plug for my, my most recent edited volume on um, national security whistleblowing. Um, so, so far, no big whistleblowers in, in this moment, but um, you know, it, it's a, it's, whistleblowing is also a very interesting way to get at some of the silences um, and gaps in the kind of official story of American foreign policy. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Hannah R. German on Rambo 3 Counterinsurgency and the Ukraine Crisis. Now we're going to switch gears as we discuss the newly released FBI documents concerning potential Saudi complicity in the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Joining us to unravel that story is Bronco Marchtich, one of the few people in the media right now, along with the North Jersey Media Group and Democracy Now!, to have covered these newly released documents. There's been a media blackout on this for some reason. I mean, I understand that we're concerned with Ukraine and that's an important subject, but, you know, we've gone to Will Smith now and still haven't had uh, much coverage of these new documents. In any case, Bronco wrote about this in one of his recent articles for Jacobin Magazine entitled, We Have New Evidence of Saudi Involvement in 9-11, and Barely Anyone Cares. And of course, the Barely Anyone Cares part is reference the lack of media coverage about the recent FBI documents. With all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Bronco Marchtich. Welcome back to Parallax Views, Bronco Marchitich, uh, Jacobin staff writer and author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden, uh, and also the author of the article we're going to be talking about uh, from Jacobin Magazine. I believe it was written uh, two weeks ago. 
We have new evidence of Saudi involvement in 9-11 and barely anyone cares. Uh, that is quite the title. Uh, how are you doing, Bronco? And maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit more about this. I believe it's what a 510-page report that has been released uh, by the FBI. Uh, yeah, great to be with you. Uh, it, it is a 510-page report by the FBI that was released uh, a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. Um, it's one of the disclosures that is uh, as a result of Biden's executive order back in 2021, late 2021. We basically uh, signed a, a an order saying any files to do with, uh, you know, that, that give us information about what happened on September 11, uh, which is kind of a coded uh, way to say, you know, Saudi involvement in, in uh, September 11. Uh, should be uh, declassified unless the you know the, there was there was some language that kind of gave a bit of a, a hedge basically you know if um, unless it, it was going to do some sort of damage or something along those lines um, but you know this uh, piece of information that was that was divulged um, you know I mean in terms of uh, U.S. <laughs> geopolitical uh, interests uh, isn't exactly conducive to those, and yet it was released. So um, it, it suggests perhaps that that uh, there's going to be more explosive things coming in the future. Um, I mean, you know, right now the U.S. is um, really badly trying to kind of uh, appease or or um, uh, show show the Saudi government that that the U.S. is still very much committed to them um, in the wake of this whole uh, war in Ukraine. They're kind of being humiliated uh, and, and rebuffed by the Saudis, which is kind of interesting. Um, but perhaps because this report that got out. Uh, was basically not covered at all by anyone. Uh, perhaps for that reason, um, it didn't really end up kind of further souring relations between the US and Saudi Arabia. I was going to say, you're not kidding when you say it wasn't covered by anyone. I, there's your article. I think Democracy Now! covered it at one point uh, two weeks ago. And then there's um, Mike Kelly at, at the North Jersey Media Group. And other than that, it's been a complete media blackout. Yeah, it's, it's shocking. Uh, I have a pretty dim or pessimistic view of of the the u.s press you know i, I think there's a lot of talented reporters uh, and, and, and editors and stuff that, that work for a lot of mainstream publications but uh i also think that there's a lot of kind of you know a lot of people are covering their own interests and there's a lot of a lot more kind of political bias than, than people uh, uh admit nonetheless i expected that this would at least be you know what newspapers used to do in the past they would kind of take a story and they wouldn't just not report it. They would just bury it somewhere where you couldn't find it um, or where only a very small number of people would read it. Uh, and then, you know, they could say, well, we did cover it, uh, but it's just that, you know, you didn't happen to, to dig far enough. And I thought that might be what, hap- what, what would happen with this particular story. But as you say, to my uh, uh, genuine shock, basically no one uh, has talked about this. Uh, at all, other than those few outlets that you mentioned. Um, and, you know, I, it wouldn't have even come across my radar, I think, were it not for maybe a Twitter user um, who flagged the, the, North, the, the NorthJersey.com uh, piece to my attention, and then I went and, and went through the report. Um, so, yeah, pretty stunning stuff. So at the crux of this report, or, or the part that's really juicy, I guess, is uh, this figure of Omar Albayumi. Uh, who was working in San Diego, and he met up with Al-Hasmi and Al-Midar, two of the hijackers. Uh, Can you take it from there, maybe explain what the revelations are about Omar al-Bayoumi? Sure. Uh, 
you know, he was a guy that, that uh, based on previous disclosures and based on actually the, the 9-11 Commission report, there were some hints that maybe he was a Saudi spy, um, which which would uh, obviously, you know, be pretty scandalous stuff if a Saudi uh, intelligence agent was kind of interacting with uh, two of the hijackers, but not just interacting with, but actually, you know, uh, giving them some, some assistance. Um, but yeah, helping them find apartments and things like that. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And it wasn't clear that he was a spy, but this was uh, there were these rumors going around at the time. Um, and even in that FBI report, it does have a, a page from, I think, dated, dated to 2001, where they say, you know, uh, there is a there's a good chance that he may have known about this attack uh, in advance. But, you know, subsequent to that. Um, the FBI, the 9-11 Commission report, they both said, you know, uh, no, we don't have evidence that he actually knew in advance. We don't have evidence that he was, you know, a government agent or whatever. Um, so, we're, you know, he, we're, we're basically exonerating him. Fast forward to 2022, this report comes out and we find out that in 2017, there's an FBI document in that report that mentions that, um, well, you know, uh, there's a 50-50 chance that, that Al-Bayoumi actually did know uh, about the attack in advance. Uh, then you go right to the bottom. Um, so if anyone wants to read this for themselves, just go go to, I think, something like page 505 or, or so. Uh, and you um, there's this document that talks about um, based 2017 again, and it mentions that, uh, well, at this point now, the FBI has basically confirmed that, that Bayoumi was, in fact, a Saudi spy. He was working for the, the kind of principal uh, intelligence agency. The, the Saudi general intelligence presidency. He was getting a that, monthly stipend, I believe. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, and so that suddenly puts everything into a different light, because what Bayoumi did, as you say, he helped these hijackers. He found them an apartment in San Diego. He co-signed their lease. He acted as a guarantor uh, for them because they didn't have a credit score, didn't have all these other kind of this financial history that you usually need to get an apartment in the United States. He also happened to, uh, I believe, pay one of their month's rent when they were kind of struggling. Uh, he introduced them to people in the Saudi community in San Diego. Um, and the way that he met these guys is very uh, strange as well, in that uh, I think it was in L.A. They went to a restaurant in L.A. And uh, Bayumi and others say, you know, just by chance, by pure accident, you know, they were sitting at this restaurant and they hear these two guys uh, speaking Arabic, and they go, oh, well, you know, where are you from? And they get to know each other. And then that's where this extraordinary help to these two guys who ended up, you know, carrying out an attack on, on, on U.S. soil ends up stemming from. But now, now that we know that he's a Saudi intelligence agents, uh, agent, and given that we know that the Saudi government, you know, this this is not a controversial or new thing. We, we've known for a very long time that the Saudi government uh, has a kind of, deal in place because the Saudi royal family needs kind of the, 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 the religious uh, authority to, 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 uh, to rule. Um, they ha have been for many, many decades in bed with, with basically uh, uh, Muslim fundamentalists and extremists who happen to sort of fund um, and, and, and promote uh, the, the, the Wahhabism, you know, the, the extreme, uh, very fundamentalist version of Islam uh, that a lot of these, these terrorists uh, subscribe to. And knowing that, knowing that for, for many years, Saudi Arabia has been kind of very unhelpful um, uh, 
uh, uh, to actually cracking down on these extremists. Even Hillary Clinton in, in one of her private emails, you know, complained about how Saudi Arabia wasn't very helpful in this respect. Uh, all of that taken together makes this revelation that this guy is in fact a Saudi spy a lot more explosive. And what's even more explosive, I would argue, is who it's revealed that he was being paid by. And you're, of course, talking about, I believe it's Prince Bandar bin Sultan al-Saud. That's correct. Uh, he was the longtime Saudi ambassador to the United States. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm now I'm drawing a blank on how long, but he was in place. He was there for decades, you know, and to the point that he had a lot of close relationships with power brokers in the United States. Uh, he is nicknamed, his informal kind of nickname is, is Banda Bush. And the reason why he's called Banda Bush is because he's that close to the Bush family. Uh, he was very, very, very good friends with George H.W. Bush. Uh, I believe there's actually a letter um, where, where uh, Banda sent Bush saying something along the lines of, you know, I feel that I'm a part of your family and you are part of mine. Um, when George W. Bush, his son, decided to run for president, H.W. Bush told him, you know, the guy you should talk to is, is Banda. He'll tell you, he'll give you advice. He'll tell you what you need to know. He'll introduce you to the people. Um, and it wasn't just the Bushes. Uh, Banda also had a pretty close relationship with um, uh, Colin Powell. Uh, they would play racquetball together. Uh, I believe uh, Banda gifted Colin Powell a Jaguar, as in a, a, a car. Um, uh, so... Uh, this guy was very, very close to to the the Bushes, but also the 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 kind of power establishment in Washington. Um, when Bush later launches the Iraq War, uh, Banda is one of the first people he tells about it. Uh, and there's all sorts of other you know examples. I could go on and on and on. Um, this FBI report reveals that the stipend that that Bayoumi was getting from the Saudi government was being paid through Banda. And that Banda was, uh, while he was uh, paying him this money, Bayumi was then directly reporting to Banda, giving him the whatever intelligence uh, that he was collecting. And then Banda would then pass that information on back to the, the GIP, the, the, the Saudi intelligence agency. Um, all of that brings up a lot of questions. You know, if Bayumi did, first of all, was Bayumi, if he was doing this wittingly, and I find it very difficult to believe that he wasn't helping these guys wittingly. Was he doing it with the blessing of the Saudi government or people in the Saudi government? Uh, if he knew in advance about the September 11 attack, did Banda know? Was he reporting this to Banda? How much did Banda know about what was happening? Why didn't Banda at any point mention any of this to, to, to Bush uh, or anyone else in the US and say, hey, I have some information that um, you know the US might be attacked by, by you know, people that, that the government is you know, connected to in whatever way. Uh, did, did Bush's relationship with Banda, his close relationship, in some ways cloud his judgment uh, in terms of, you know, I don't, I don't, really, I don't believe this, <laughs> uh, this ridiculous idea that Bush kind of orchestrated 9-11. Uh, and, you know, the, the easiest way to dismiss that is, well, okay, if, if they did and then they use it to invade Afghanistan and Iraq, why not just make the, the hijackers uh, Iraqis and Afghanistanis instead of Saudis? Doesn't really make a lot of sense. But, I mean, if Bush was in some way, uh, you know, had his judgment clouded, wasn't really paying attention because who knows why, because of this relationship with this guy, 
Um, that's a pretty big scandal because you let an attack happen that could have been easily prevented. Uh, there's so many more questions you could you could ask, but that's a major thing. I mean, Banda um, and Bayoumi both are now in Saudi Arabia. They refuse to be interviewed um, by the FBI, I believe. Uh, and as far as I know, they're just going to live out the rest of their lives over there with, with never really seeing any sort of, um, uh, not even justice, not even any scrutiny for uh, what, what seems to be every time one of these disclosures come out, pretty pretty explosive revelations about their role in this. I was going to say too, since you brought up the whole, uh, you know, it's become a meme now, the, the whole 9-11 was an inside job. Um, and I, I too am, am very skeptical of that. But also, I, I don't think these documents necessarily mean, you know, oh, the the, the royal family orchestrated uh, 9-11, the, the Saudi royal family. But, you know, it, it does seem to indicate a, a level of um, complicity. Um, w- would you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it, it, the complicity is definitely the word because, yeah, we don't know exactly what their role was, what people in the Saudi government knew. Uh, that's something that's not really established. Uh, but clearly the Saudi government was in bed with some dangerous people. Um, and, you know, I mean, like I said, the, the, the house of Saad made, made this, this, or has this deal in place, you know, where it sort of tolerates some of these, these extremists, um, because they also give them the legitimacy to rule, uh, in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, the, the, uh, it could easily just be that, that by sort of getting into bed with these people, they ended up facilitating something really terrible in the same way that, you know, um, for instance, the CIA, when it got into bed with these uh, Cuban right wingers uh, in the 60s and 70s, because they found it convenient uh, to, to use them against Castro, uh, you know, th- those guys did terrorist attacks in, in Miami and, and, and against Americans. Um, then what doesn't mean that the, that the U.S., uh, the CIA was, you know, that's what they wanted to do, uh, you know, that they were planning for people to get killed. Um, although, although certainly there are documents that suggest that that was on the table at one point, but but it wasn't that they were orchestrating these attacks. It's the fact that the CIA, by virtue of kind of working with these people, funding them, helping them out, was empowering people who were violent and who ended up doing, uh, you know, killing people and, and, and carrying out violence against Americans. So I think it's a, we can look at it potentially in a similar way, um, uh, uh, the, the, the Saudi 9-11 connection. So just a, a few more things briefly here. I believe that uh, in your article, you mentioned that uh, one of the, uh, I think it was the, the co-chair to the 9-11 commission, Tom Keen, actually uh, commented about these recent revelations. Yeah, that was in the, the North Jersey article. Uh, he uh, he said something along the lines of, well, you know, the FBI told us that they, didn't, they were telling us the full truth, and it seems like maybe they, they weren't now. Um, and, you know, I mean, he also said, you know, I want to caution people not to read too much into this about Saudi involvement. Um, so, you know, uh, I think he's taking a similar position there that, that we are here, which is this is pretty explosive stuff and pretty scandalous, but it doesn't, you know, we don't, know enough to say exactly what the level of Saudi involvement was, what the level of Saudi complicity was. Um, so, you know, but still for a guy like that, who, you know, he, he chaired the commission, he was a, 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 he's an establishment politician for him to, to say that about the FBI. That's kind of a big deal. It suggests that, um, I mean, it, it's, you know, the question with all of this is always what else don't we know? We, we know what we know, we know what we've learned recently, but, but until, the last few years until the last six years, there's so much about this that that was uh, completely unknown to us. So the last thing I wanted to touch upon here, the, the second half of your article, which is uh, 
appropriately titled House of Humiliation, uh, gets into how, you know, despite all of the things that we know about Saudi Arabia, um, from this to, you know, the uh, death of Khashoggi, you know, ultimately, we still continue to support Saudi Arabia and the, and the kingdom, um, including in its really brutal war against Yemen. So it raises the question, why? Why, why do we keep supporting uh, this country that doesn't actually live up to the uh, ideals that the U.S. claims to hold? You know, we, we talk about human rights and, and believing in democracy. Well, it doesn't seem like Saudi Arabia necessarily holds to those uh, ideals. Yeah, and and I just to, to preface that by by saying um, the the way that the Saudi government has behaved through this um, you know this war in Ukraine has been pretty stunning to watch because I've never seen a country that that uh, you know aside from maybe countries that are considered uh, uh, adversaries or enemies as maybe you know as, as Venezuela was um, in the in the two thousands and and really well and and until now. Uh, under, under Chavez and then Maduro. Uh, but beyond that, I've never seen a country that is, is allied with the United States just kind of continually and richly humiliate the US president, um, you know, just basically completely dismiss them, even as they're getting billions upon billions of dollars of help um, from the United States. Israel is maybe the only um only other example I can think of, at least off the top of my head right now. I mean, the Saudi government has, um, they they very much dragged their feet on condemning uh, Putin's war in Ukraine, which, you know, if you're the US, you're trying to corral this kind of global front to say that, look, look, the world is united in condemnation behind us as we, as we speak out against Putin's war. Saudi Arabia and the UAE took their time to do that. Um, Biden has been asking them for months to step up oil production because of the inflation uh, uh, problem. And they, uh, the, well, uh, the, the crown prince has just basically said, no, uh, we're not going to do that. Um, just recently, uh, as Putin was waging war in Ukraine, uh, the, the crown prince actually took a call from Putin when, when Biden called him, he didn't take it. I mean, that is, that is really humiliating, especially for a country that is, you know, really the, the global superpower, the only global superpower for, for now. Um, and, and Biden still sold them more weapons. They're still helping them bomb uh, the Yemenis, giving them really vital logistical support to do that. Uh, why is that happening? I mean, I think my, my thinking is uh, it's the same reason why uh, Putin uh, felt he had the kind of freedom to, to invade Ukraine, uh, which is that, look, if you have a massive amount of oil and gas reserves, if you're a country with, with, with lots of fossil fuels, this is the fundamental ingredient of not just the economy, but just basically modern civilization. The, 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 everything that you can imagine that makes what our modern lives are uh, is based on oil because that's what that's the energy uh, basis for, for, for everything, you know, whether it's electricity, whether it's transporting goods across the country, whether it's shipping goods across the, you know, the seas, people flying uh, uh, cross continental, everything. So as long as we need oil and gas to be able to run our societies um, and any other fossil fuel, anyone that has that fossil fuel, especially if they have copious amounts of it, um, they know, well, at least they can, they feel that they can get away with a lot of things because at the end of the day, what are you going to do? I mean, just basically starve your country of, of this vital energy source. No, probably not. That's what's happening in Russia right now where Putin just recently said basically to Europe, 
you're going to have to buy your uh, oil and gas from us in, uh, in, in rubles um, and basically uh, break your own sanctions. Otherwise, we're not going to ship it to you. Uh, and I think it's what's happening with Saudi Arabia as well, where they're saying, well, you know, we know you're not very happy with us. We, we know, you know, Biden ran on this whole platform of condemning authoritarians. And he said, you know, I'm going to, unlike Trump, I'm going to stand up to, uh, to, to, to Saudi Arabia. And uh, that hasn't really happened. And it's because they know the U.S. can't afford to alienate Saudi Arabia, both because it's a, a, an important source of, of, of oil, but also because they don't want Saudi Arabia going into the orbit of, of Russia and China. And, you know, uh, until we transition away from fossil fuels, which is obviously an important thing to do anyway, because we don't want all of human civilization to unravel and society to, to get killed off. Uh, in the near term, this is what's going to keep happening is these um, autocrats who, who happen to have a lot of fossil fuels uh, can sort of violate international law and do all sorts of outrageous things. I mean, to put it really crudely, it's it's almost like they can say, yeah, yeah, we know that you you say you care about international law. We know you're an ally. Uh, we know you don't like, you know, when we commit some horrible human rights atrocity. But hey, if you want our oil and gas, you know, you're going to shut up about that and not give us a problem. That's that's basically what is happening in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, notable to me. I mean, Biden didn't really punish uh, Saudi Arabia for the Khashoggi killing. He, he said he would. But he didn't really do anything. He sort of it was a bit of a slap in the wrist. Um, and but uh, this is considered such an insult to the Saudi, Saudi government that they have nonetheless basically kind of been tormenting Biden, you know, as his presidency was taking a nosedive because of inflation, uh, not just inflation. There's there's lots of other issues, too. But that, that was a big part of it. And, you know, as he's pleading for them, hey, can you step up production, which is what Saudi Arabia, you know, back in the, in the Gulf War, um, in the 991 uh, Gulf War, that, that's exactly what Saudi Arabia did, was uh, they stepped up uh, oil production because there was a, there was a fear that, that Saddam's um, uh, invasion of Kuwait would, would lead to a recession. Um, and now they're saying no, even because, even, even just from a, a slap in the wrist, a symbolic slap in the wrist from Biden, even as he's continuing to give their, uh, their, their, their fighter planes, you know, uh, refuel them in midair, as he's giving them sort of intelligence to bomb things in Yemen, as he's backing up their, their blockade of Yemen, all this stuff. None of it matters. The fact that the U.S. would even uh, slightly show any kind of disapproval uh, is enough uh, for this country to basically um, screw over the president of the, of the United States. I, I also believe that, uh, you know, it wasn't just with the Khashoggi uh, incident that maybe promises were broken by Biden. I think he also uh, broke some pledges that he had with regards to Yemen as well, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a very classic uh, thing that the Biden administration did. At least, you know, I mean, a lot of politicians do this, but this has really been the MO of, of the Biden administration. They ran on ending the war. They, you know, obviously he became president, not just because of that issue, but clearly it was, you know, people found it acceptable enough to, to uh, you know, vote him into power. One of the first things he did, he signs an executive order uh, saying, you know, we're no longer going to support this, this dreadful war. Um, of course, what happens in the executive order, there's fine print and that fine, fine print is, well, we will still support defensive actions. Um, and the thing is, you can define almost anything as defensive, especially because the, the Houthis in, in, in Yemen have been, you know, hitting Saudi targets, uh, which is not, not exactly... Uh, 
crazy to to it's a pretty rational thing from from their point of view you know they've been they've been bombed to, to smithereens for seven years now um so you know that they, they they uh are deciding we're going to actually attack the saudis and and maybe escalate things a little bit make them feel some of the pain um and so you know for that partly for that reason i think they would have done it anyway but they can define um giving offensive support to the saudis as they just continue to bomb you know prisons, residential areas, all this stuff. Uh, and they can define it as, as it's defensive. They're being attacked, so they're trying to defend themselves. Um, so the war in Yemen, nothing has changed, unfortunately. The only thing that's changed is I think people are paying less attention to it because Biden signed the executive order. And I think a lot of uh, the press, and I think a lot of other people went, oh, yeah, well, that's that. Yeah, that's good. We got the good guy in power and he's done the good thing. And now we can just sort of uh, be on our way. Well, thank you again, Bronco Marchteach, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? Uh, you're on Twitter, and of course, uh, you, your articles can be read at Jacobin. Any Anything else? Uh, yeah, Jacobin. Uh, occasionally, I write for Indies Times, which is a, a Chicago-based uh, progressive magazine. That's, that's a great one to check out. Um, and uh, I also have a podcast, One of 200, where we... It's mostly New Zealand-based. I'm from New Zealand, but we also cover some international uh, issues there, so people can check that out if, they, uh, if they're interested. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Hannah R. German and Bronco Marchteach. Also, I should note that conversation with Hannah R. German, I had mentioned uh, that ending of Rambo 3 saying that it was dedicated to the brave freedom fighters of the Mujahideen. I think I was wrong about that. I think that is an urban myth based on what I've read now. And, you know, when I watched it, I could have sworn it said the Mujahideen. So apparently something like the Mandela effect is going on, uh, or I'm misremembering. (laughs) But I just wanted to point that out at the end here. Uh, I think the ending of the film actually says this film is dedicated to the gallant people of Afghanistan which in the case of Rambo 3 just so happens to basically be the Mujahideen in any case uh, if you support the work I do here at Parallax Views please 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 consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Parallax Views one more time that's patreon.com slash Parallax Views You can support me financially with a monthly donation of one, five, ten, fifteen, or a hundred dollars. Any amount will help. It is your financial support that keeps this show going. And with that being said, this mission is over, Rambo. Do you understand me? This mission is over. Look at him out there. Look at him! If you don't end this now, they're gonna kill you. Is that what you want? It's over, Johnny. It's over! Nothing is over! Nothing! You just don't turn it off! <laughs>